the book of Philippians, chapter 1. There was once a student who wanted to learn from a world-renowned scientist and professor. So the student approached the professor and said, I want to learn to see the world the way you do. The professor obliged. Placing a large yellow jar on the counter, the professor pointed to the fish within the jar and said, look at this fish. And tell me what you see. The student studied the fish for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Finally, he went back to the professor with his findings. The fish has fleshy lips and lidless eyes and split fins, so on and so forth. The professor was disappointed. You haven't even begun to see this fish. Keep looking. The student poked and prodded and stared at the fish until he became discouraged, bored, irritated, hour after hour. He wanted to leave and be anywhere else but in this laboratory looking at this fish over and over and over again. But he kept looking. And in time, he began to see new things in the fish, many new things, one new thing after another. Good, said the professor. Keep looking at the fish. And so he did. The student kept looking, and he looked, and he looked, and he looked for three whole days until finally he saw the fish. I wonder if you have ever looked at the Bible the way that this student learned to look at the fish. At a quick glance, this morning's text, a mere three verses, may not reveal much to our impatient eyes. Fleshy lips, gills, a split fin, prayer of thanksgiving, gospel partnership, joy, got it. Check. Great. Let's move on to verse 6. But what if we just slow down and look at these verses? I mean, really look at these verses. Maybe we will find more here than we ever expected. Let's read the text for ourselves and then ask for God's help. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, help us to look. Help us to see. Keep our attention so that we might glory in your glory. Amen. 
Now, instead of giving you a whole bunch of fancy point titles that have a lot of really good alliteration, uh, the points for this morning are just going to point to the words in the text that we're going to be talking about. Point number one, thanks. Thanks. When we think about Thanksgiving, we tend to think of footballs and parades and turkey naps on the couch, not blood sacrifices and songs and holy prayers. But the biblical concept of Thanksgiving is infinitely more glorious than the commercialized spectacle we celebrate every November in this country. The biblical concept of Thanksgiving begins in the Old Testament, where God commands his covenant children, Israel, to make offerings of Thanksgiving. And these, these offerings, of course, were not designed to earn God's favor. Rather, they were made in light of having already received God's unmerited favor. That's why they're called an offer of Thanksgiving. You're giving thanks for that which, which you have already received. You can read about those in the book of Leviticus for yourself. Now, besides these sacrificial offerings of thanks, God also commanded his people to offer up songs of thanksgiving. Just listen to uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. All the Levitical singers arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, they stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, saying, He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Thanksgiving as a response to God's mercy and grace is a theme that shows up over and over again in the Bible. Just consider Israel's return to the promised land. Seventy years under the rod of discipline in exile, God brings them back. Here's one of the first things that happens when the wall is built. Nehemiah 12. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Moving into the New Testament, Jesus, the better Israel, role models this act of worship known as thanksgiving. When he fed the 4,000, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks to his father, he broke them. In the words of Jesus in the Last Supper, we find another echo of Israel's thanksgiving. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, drink of it. In Romans 1, Paul says that a litmus test, a litmus test for those in rebellion against God is whether or not they are able to offer thanksgiving to God for being God. Romans 1.21 For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you see the contrast here? Feudal thinking, foolish, dark hearts, unable to see God and all that he's doing to give them grace. 
That is a picture of man lost in sin. Now, in contrast to this darkness, this blindness, this futility, there are those who have had the eyes of their hearts enlightened, those who can actually see the grace and mercy of God in all things and in their lives, and therefore they honor God and give thanks to Him. Paul writes to the Colossians, as people who have had their eyes enlightened, continue steadfastly in prayer. That means constantly, consistently, faithfully. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Look, you have the ability to see, so see, be on the lookout for everything that God is doing in your life. You remember the post 9-11 anti-terrorism campaign? If you see something, say something. Okay, well, this is a gospel version of that. Paul says, be on the constant lookout for God's grace, and when you see it, say something. Thank God for it. Now, much more could be said about Thanksgiving in general from the Bible, but I want us to sort of narrow in from this biblical theology of Thanksgiving to a little bit more specific to this morning's text, a prayer of Thanksgiving, which leads us to point two, God. God. You'll see in verse 3 that Paul says, I thank my God. Paul's prayer is directed to God. Here's a silly question. You ready? Why? Why does Paul direct his thanksgiving to God? Well, Sean, (laughs) Pastor Sean, That kind of seems like a silly question, especially for a pastor to ask. When we pray, we talk to God. We direct our words, our thoughts, our affections to God. So that's why he's directing his prayer of thanksgiving to God. Well, okay, true, yes, I get that. But maybe just pause, take a second, and think about this as if you don't already understand the phenomena of prayer. Maybe even think about this from the perspective of an unbeliever, someone who perhaps doesn't believe in God in in particular, or who doesn't believe in the metaphysical in general. Do a little thought experiment with me, okay? The Philippians, we know, have been receiving, or excuse me, have been giving care to Paul, right? They've been sending him messengers. They've been meeting his material needs. They've been praying for him. So why does Paul thank God for what the Philippians have done on his path? On his behalf? Why doesn't he thank the humans who have helped him? Why doesn't he thank the organization? Why, when he feels this feeling of thanksgiving, does he not direct it to the people who are helping him, but rather to God? To the materialist, there's nothing outside of this material world. This way of thinking makes no sense, right? Don't thank God, thank those people over there, right? There's another earthquake in Turkey. Don't pray to God. Give your money to UNICEF. An atheist humanities professor, Dr. Aronson, once wrote this about his strange experience with Thanksgiving and his complete and utter confusion about what to do with it. He says, hiking through (coughs) the nearby woods on a late summer day, I followed the turning path and suddenly I saw a pristine lake 
Then I walked down a hill to its edge as birds chirped and darted about, stopping at a clearing to register the warmth of the sun against my face. Feelings welled up, physical pleasure, delight in the sounds and sights, gladness to be out here on this day. But something else as well, curious, less distinct, a a vague feeling more like gratitude than anything else, but not towards any being or person I could recognize. Only half-formed, this feeling didn't fit into any easily discernible category, evading my usual lenses and language of perception. What does the materialist do with this overwhelming feeling of thanksgiving? To what, to whom does he direct such feelings? Dr. Aronson can't tell you. He doesn't know. Something deep within him tells him that his gratitude needs to be directed somewhere, but where? Not towards any being or person that I could recognize. That's what he says. And I agree with the doctor. He cannot recognize this person. Because all men who reject God have become futile in their thinking and are incapable of giving thanks to God. But for the Christian, such feelings make complete sense in a world created by God and for His glory. We don't have to think twice about it. We don't need to write an article and meditate on the on the philosophical and existential conundrum of what we feel. It just comes up out of us. Thanksgiving is going to God. The materialist would have us direct our feelings of thanksgiving to the creation itself, perhaps. Maybe it's just useful, even if it doesn't mean anything. But the heart of the materialist knows on some level that that's just not good enough. It won't satisfy. That's why he wrote that. It didn't satisfy him what he did with that Thanksgiving. What we see in Paul's prayer this morning is that he knows, like we all know, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And of course, at one level, yes, obviously, Paul is thankful to the Philippians themselves for their provision and care. Yes, But at a deeper level, at the deepest possible level, Paul knows that his thanksgiving must go to God. Because Paul knows that God is the one who moved in the hearts of the Philippians to cause them to partner with him in the gospel. Friends, that's what God does. God is in the moving in the heart business. Men can do a lot in this world. We can make things happen. We can build connections and bridges. We can shift money from one account to another. But what we are utterly incapable of doing is moving in the hearts of our fellow human beings to cause them to feel. That's something that only God can do. And Paul knows that's what God has done with the Philippians. Do you remember who the first convert was in Philippi? Lydia, right? Listen to how Luke describes Lydia's conversion experience. One who heard us when we were preaching was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. 
And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Atheist philosopher Sam Harris might say that Lydia only listened to Paul's preaching because of a series of prior causes, utterly outside of her control, acting on her will in a way that she can never really understand because the universe is a mystery. That's determinism, by the way. The mystics might say that Lydia listened to Paul's message because the universe wanted her to hear it. But God says she listened to Paul because I opened her heart to listen to Paul. Now, friends, if God can move in a single heart, and he can, then he can also move in the hearts of many. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul writes, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Why did only one church partner with Paul? Right? Paul goes out and he preaches the gospel to thousands and tens of thousands, but only a few open their hearts and get saved. Why? Because God. Paul goes to all these churches in Macedonia, some perhaps that already exist, others perhaps that he's planted. He goes out to them. He, he builds a relationship with them. And only one church among the many choose to partner with him. Why? Because God. Now go back to verse 10 real quick. Excuse me, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your, excuse me, you have revived your concern for me. Do you see that? Concern. That's the language of the heart. Paul says, you Philippians have revived your concern for me. You did it. You did it. You revived your affections for me, your concern for me. And who does he give thanks to? He says, I rejoiced in the Lord. That you did that. He doesn't rejoice in the Philippians that they did it. He rejoices in God because he knows that God is the one who caused them to revive their concern. Okay, well, we're not really apostles. We're not missionaries, at least in in the strictest sense. And we're not in prison like Paul. So what what does this have to do with us here at Sixth Avenue? Well, a lot. For starters, you may be a missionary who goes to prison one day. So, you know, pay attention. But there's more for us to consider here. Something perhaps even more immediately and obviously practical. Friends, do you know that God has done the very same thing for our church that he did for the Apostle Paul? God has opened the hearts of many saints over the years and has moved them and caused them to commit themselves to this congregation for the sake of meaningful, long-term gospel partnership. And for that, we should thank God with a deep and serious joy. Why are you all here this morning? 
If your answer is anything other than because God, it's the wrong answer. Now, we've talked a lot about partnership, and by the way, this is the longest point of the sermon. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. We've talked a lot about partnership, but we haven't really defined it. When Paul talks about gospel partnership, he's referring to relational, material, and spiritual assistance. So just turn with me to chapter 4, verse 14. Maybe you're already there, still there. (coughs) Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. That is a pretty good way to summarize gospel partnership, right? Sharing in one another's troubles because we love Jesus. You don't have to be a missionary to enter into gospel partnership like this. You don't have to know a missionary to enter into gospel partnership like this. Friends, at one level, this is just basic Christian community. This is what the local church is. I love Jesus and you love Jesus. And so we're going to do our best to work together to carry out the Great Commission. And we are going to have troubles along the way. And sometimes you're going to be in need and sometimes I'm going to be in need. But because we both love Jesus and want the mission to succeed more than we want anything for ourselves, then we enter into these sacrificial gospel partnerships. It's not about who has to carry more or who has to do more or who has to give more or who has to risk more. And if you're saying has to, has to, has to, you've already missed the mark, right? My kids are like, I don't, I don't want to. I'm like, no, 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 you get to. And then I preach the same thing to myself. We get to do all of these things. We get to partner for the sake of the gospel. Point three, my. My. <clears throat> the next thing you'll see in verse 3 is that Paul refers to God with the possessive pronoun, my. Go back to chapter 1, look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, if you read through the Psalms regularly, you probably recognize this language from Paul, right? This is the language of intense personal engagement with God. Just, I'm going to give you some examples. Just, just listen. Psalm 3-7. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. Psalm 18-2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This my God language is a language of deeply personal engagement with God. Now, of course, my God is not the only way that Paul refers to God in this letter. As a matter of fact, in verse 2, right before verse 3, Paul refers to God like this. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Right? So there's that that plural. And that's good. Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Right? When in a corporate context, especially, we should be using this plural language. Which, by the way, like, I don't know if you've noticed, like, when we pray up here on a Sunday morning, it's always plural. When we get into prayer groups, it's always plural. We do it because of 
this reason. But there are times in the midst of deep despair or delight where we need God to be more personal to us. We need to communicate him as if he is not just our God, but he's my God, right? Just like those of us with children know that sometimes we speak to the children in our family, right? And we're the mom or the dad of the whole family, but sometimes you got to pull one child aside and you got to sit down with them and you got to look them in the eye and you got to talk to them like you're their dad, right? They need to know he's not just the family's dad, he's my dad, he's, uh, she's my mom, right? So what I want you to see here is that Paul views this provision that he's receiving in the Philippians Gospel Partnership as personal provision from a personal God, my God. And yes, I know. Oh, trust me, I know. In our highly individualized society, we can all too easily and do all too easily individualize our faith to the neglect of the corporate realities of the gospel. I understand that. I battle it every day as a pastor. But we must not be too quick to overcorrect. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We shouldn't be afraid of talking about God and talking to God the way that Paul does here, the way that the psalmist does in the Psalms, the way that Jesus does in the Gospels. My God, why have you forsaken? Let's drive this home a little deeper. Here's your personal application. If you are in this room and you are a Christian, God is your God. He loves you. He died for you. He pours out his many and varied blessings on you. He doesn't just discipline the entire church. He disciplines you as a beloved son or daughter individually. It's not like God is up there just caring for the entire church in general and you just happy to be lucky enough to get caught up in the wave of his general provision. No, God sees you. He knows you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He called you by name. He took your name to the cross. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in some vague, ethereal, shared common space. Like in a college dorm room. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And your God is working his mighty hand of providence to give you eternal joy in him forever. Now for anyone here this morning who may be seeking God or wrestling with God. I I hope you see what's so unique about the Christian faith. Christianity alone says that God is, yes, beyond us, it's true, but because of his love for us, he draws near to us as individuals. He cares for us. He gave his son for us. The offer of salvation that God is making this morning is a personal offer to you. He's saying, I love you, I want to be reconciled to you, and I want you to know me and enjoy me forever. And don't you want this? I kind of don't care if you agree with me. I know that you want it. Because we all want it. Because that's how God made us. 
He is supposed to be our Father, with whom we have a personal relationship, whether we choose to accept that reality or deny it. There's something in you that lives in you so deep that when you hear God's offer to re-enter into a relationship with you personally, your soul cries out and says, yes, give that to me. And that's the amazing thing about the gospel, is that he will. And you don't even have to do anything to earn it. All you have to do is turn away from your sin and receive his grace. Now, before we move on to point four, we need to just say a word about suffering. In Psalm 22, verse 7, which Jesus quotes from the cross, we read these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Friends, we have to see that the same God who moves the psalmist to give thanksgiving in light of his many personal blessings is also the God who causes the psalmist to cry out in agony and despair and wondering why God seems to have abandoned him personally. So don't be fooled by the prosperity preachers into thinking that your personal provision is from God, but your suffering is only from Satan. The same God who is at work in Paul's provision is also at work in his suffering and his imprisonment. And the same thing is true of you. The same thing is true of me. The same thing is true of this church. If he is our God in our blessing, then he is also our God in our misery, in our trials, in our suffering. As a matter of fact, he may be our personal God most existentially, most significantly, most forcefully in the blessings that he gives us through our sufferings. Point number four, all my remembrance. The next thing I want you to see here is pretty obvious. Every time Paul remembers the Philippians, he just has to stop and thank God for them. Do you have people like that in your life? Do you have your own Philippians? I know you probably have your Corinthians. The people, thank you, by the way. <laughs> if I was in a room full of Bible nerds, that one would have killed. And serious, though, you know, the Corinthians, they caused Paul a lot of grief and anxiety and frustration. And you should thank God for the Corinthians in your life as well. But do you have people like this? People who have loved you and served you so well at great cost to themselves, even when you were making it hard on them in many ways. People that when you think about them, you just have to stop and just go, thank God. Thank you, Lord, for putting this person in my life. I don't know who it could be for you. Maybe it's something as simple as your parents, right? Who raised you faithfully in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, right? If that is your parents, when was the last time you just said, hey, mom, dad, thank you so much for being good Christian parents to me. I don't know where I'd be without you. Maybe it was someone who discipled you through a really formative stage in your life. I've, I've been sitting and talking with people. You know how we do, right? We get meet each other. We hear each other's testimonies, you know? And I've, I've heard people say like, and then this person in college and they said this thing to me, and I didn't see it, but they helped me see it, and I couldn't believe it. And I was like, oh, and then it changed the path. 
the, the course of my life, you know? And I'm like, oh, when was the last time you thanked them for that? And they were like, 10 years ago. Do it again. Right? Maybe it was someone who walked through with you through a difficult patch in your marriage. Maybe it's someone who walked with you through a season of doubt or significant suffering. Maybe it's someone who provided for your material needs in a way that you can never repay. Whoever it is, maybe just follow the Apostle Paul's example. Don't just thank God for them privately in your prayers. Make it a point to tell them that you thank God for them. Thank God. And encourage the Philippians in your life. Point number five. Every prayer. Next in verse three, you'll see that Paul says that he thanks God always in all my remembrance of you. Excuse me, this is in verse four. Always in every prayer of mine for you. Now, I want you to contrast this language, always in every prayer of mine for you, with what we see in verse 5. Look in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul says this. Because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now. The contrast may not immediately jump out at you, but here it is. Here's what I want you to see. Paul prays for the Philippians with the same kind of consistency that they provide for his needs, right? The Philippians are consistently and constantly meeting Paul's needs, and Paul is consistently and constantly praying for the Philippians. This is like a sort of redeemed quid pro quo, a a Christian tit for tat, a gospel one good turn deserves another. In Romans 12, God tells us to outdo one another in showing love, honor, and service. And here in Philippians, we see this idea fleshed out. The Philippians are serving, 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 serving. And Paul is praying, 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 praying for the Philippians. Now, a cynic might look at this exchange and say that it's not very favorable to the Philippians. The Philippians sent Epaphroditus. He almost died. They don't have very much money. We know that from elsewhere. Paul says, you gave a lot even though you had a little. And yet they're giving, giving, giving. And what is Paul giving? Prayer? And here's the hard part for us to wrap our minds around because it takes eyes of faith to see it. The material service is not greater than the prayer service. In fact, it may be less valuable. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. Paul says, I am well supplied. Well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Wow, that is high praise, right? Well taken care of, messenger did a good job, God's happy with what you've done. And my God, contrast Philippians, God, will supply every need of yours 
according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see that? Paul says, listen, Philippians, you've done a great job. I'm, I'm well supplied. Not perfectly supplied, but well supplied. The messenger did a good job. I feel love, taken care of. God's happy with this. But the contrast between well and every should pop up at you right off the page. The Philippians can't do for Paul what God can do for the Philippians. So God goes, excuse me, so Paul goes to God on behalf of the Philippians because God can give them everything that they need. Everything, not just what they think they need, but what he knows they need. So the exchange rate is very much in favor of the Philippians who are being prayed for so consistently by the Apostle Paul. You know, it's not uncommon for missionaries to ask for prayer above and beyond financial support. Now, listen, let's keep it real, okay? Some missionaries say that because that's what they think they need to say, right? Okay, I gotta say, what I covet most of all is your prayers, but also like, man, we really need some money, right? I've known those missionaries, you know? I wrestled with that temptation when we were trying to think about what to do with money when we were going to the mission field. Let me tell you, the best gospel workers, they really mean it. They really mean it. They know that prayer, the prayers of the saints, is infinitely more valuable than a couple thousand bucks, which is really the most that anyone has to offer for someone on the mission field. Point number six, making my prayer with joy. Making my prayer with joy. Since we're keeping it real, let's keep it real a little bit more. We struggle to pray, and sometimes it's easiest for us to pray out of a place of anxiety or fear. We encounter a problem, we let our issues build up to the point where we are really feeling the weight of them, and then... Then we talk to God. The bill is due, we talk to God. The relationship is fracturing, we talk to God. It's also pretty easy for us to play out of a excuse me, to pray out of a place of guilt. Right? And my hope and prayer is that after we're done with our time this morning, which you feel is not a, a guilt to pray more prayers of Thanksgiving, but a, a radically gospel-centered, Christ-infatuated desire to just talk to God more. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's easiest for us to talk to God out of a place of guilt sometimes. I know I need to be praying more, so I'm going to be disciplined. David Goggins, Jocko Willink, Jordan Peterson, make your bed every day. I'm going to have my calls to prayer set on my phone three times a day. But when was the last time that you were driven to, play, to pray by just pure joy? All right, look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. He says, I thank my God always in every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This is the kind of relationship that Paul has with the Philippians. It's such that every time he thinks about them, he's so overwhelmed with joy that he just has to go talk to God about it. Now, why is he so joyful? What about the Philippians has given Paul so much joy? Well, the answer is what we've already seen in verse 5, because he has a partnership in the gospel with the Philippians. 
Okay? Now, the takeaway from this point is a fairly simple one. You guys with me? Gospel partnerships, good gospel partnerships should fill us with joy. C.S. Lewis says that uh, friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one, which is why like CrossFit people talk about it everywhere they go. They just want to make a new friend, right? I saw you wearing those nanos. You too? Jiu-jitsu people as well, yes. Vegans, of whom I hope we have none present. (laughs) Just kidding. Even vegans are welcome. Now, take this relational joy that you have. You do jujitsu too? Take that and amplify it times a billion in the gospel. If Christ is our greatest joy, and he is, and if seeing his name glorified among the nations is our second greatest joy, which it should be, then how could we not be filled with joy when we think about friends with whom we have locked arms for the sake of the mission, those who have proven themselves faithful for the cause of Christ. Wait a second. You want to pour your life out for the sake of the gospel just like I want to pour my life out for the sake of the gospel? You want to risk it all for Jesus? Do we just become best friends? Yep. Let's go do Christian music in the garage. We'll call ourselves the Jesus Jukes. If you thought that was funny, you can thank Grant Grant Miller, who has left the building, apparently. Friends, Paul is a gospel guy. The gospel gets Paul excited. The advance of the gospel gets his juices flowing. Thinking about people who love the gospel as much as he does fills him with a deep and abiding joy that just has to come out. I have to tell you, in my Christian life in general... And after a decade of full-time ministry in particular, I've formed several deep, lasting, joy-filled relationships with other Christians. And almost none of them are centered on our common interests. Sometimes there's some overlap, and that's always great when there is, you know. You love Jesus and jujitsu. Okay, we're going to hang out a little bit more. But the vast majority of those relationships, deeply, seriously joyful relationships are held together just because we love Jesus so much and we are just down for the mission together. Now, when you think about Paul's joy here, I want you to see that the emphasis is not so much on partnership as if the Philippians deciding to invest in Paul as some kind of personal affirmation of his ministry identity. The emphasis is not on partnership. The emphasis is on gospel, right? Paul is not filled with joy because of the Philippians per se. He's filled with joy because of what the Philippians are going to do for the sake of the gospel. And let me just give you one example. I came up with like 12 the other day just sitting, staring at my computer. And I said, I'm going to give them all 12 of these. And I said, they would be very mad if I did that. So I'm just going to give you, I went from 12 to 1. There's no in between. Here's just one example of how this general truth Faithful gospel partnerships should fill your life with deep joy. Here's one way that that might apply to your life. Marriage. Well, Sean, what about the singles? I know that there are singles. This is just an example having to do with marriage. Husbands and wives should think about their relationship as a gospel partnership. Right? 
So husbands, wives, is your deepest joy in your marriage rooted in romantic love or gospel partnership? Kids, listen up, children, patience, Bella, everyone else, but really especially my kids. I hope you're excited about marriage. I hope you're excited about having a family. Maybe the Lord's calling you to singleness. Maybe one day. I hope so. Maybe you'll go be a missionary in some foreign land as a single person and take the gospel. But if, if the Lord's calling you to marriage, I want you to know that despite what our society says, marriage is a good thing. It's a great thing. It's a glorious thing. You image God with your family. And when it comes to marriage, oh, there's a lot to be excited about. For all the little girls who are looking forward to their big wedding day, I agree, you should be excited about that. It should be a big party, a magnificent celebration, a picture of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Have a blast. You have your fun wedding. You're going to be with your best friend for the rest of your life. You're going to have kids, and that's going to be a wild, crazy adventure. You're going to go on fun vacations sometimes. And, and all of that's great. But the thing that should excite you most about maybe getting married one day is the fact that you will have a lifelong partner in the gospel. Everything you do for Jesus, you're going to get to do it with someone else who loves Jesus just as much as you do. Point number six. Wait, we already did point six, six B. Six B, anxiety and the church. I feel like before I could wrap up this section on joy, I need us to see the unique gift that the church at Philippi was to the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about his suffering in ministry. Shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, hungry, cold, right? You know the whole deal. And to cap it all off, he says this, and apart from all the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, in his excellent book on anxiety, theologian Timothy Lane says that there is a difference between concern and worry. Concern is just the natural response of creatures living in a fallen world, right? Parents are concerned when their teenagers start driving. That's not sinful anxiety. That's wisdom, okay? Worry on the other hand, is to be overly concerned. It is to lack faith in the God who has promised to meet all of our needs in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says, do not be anxious. Now, Paul was an apostle, right? Big deal. But he was also human. He says it, I'm the chief of sinners. What that means is that some of his anxiety from these churches must have been sinful anxiety. Right. But if I was willing to bet, I'd say most of it was probably just concern, just reasonable concern. Just think about the churches that Paul is interacting with. The church at Galatia, Galatia being attacked by Judaizers, the church in Corinth torn apart by division, the church at Thessalonica, there's heresy rising up from within and persecution attacking from the outside. Paul has good cause for concern with these churches. And listen, these churches are kind of like children. You shouldn't have a favorite one, but maybe you do. 
Paul might have said that the Philippian church was his favorite church, owing in part to their faithfulness. Some churches give Paul heartburn. They cause him to go gray early. But other churches, like the church at Philippi, are like fresh winds in his gospel sails. Now here's what I want you to see. Not only can you expect to receive joy in good gospel partnerships, but you can expect to give joy in good gospel partnerships. You can expect to relieve anxiety in good gospel partnerships. Here are just two examples of that. Number one is just regular pastoral ministry, okay? Speaking as a pastor, I'm going to tell you I love my job, but being a pastor sometimes is very, very difficult, okay? Now, if Paul had to live with anxiety, Paul the apostle had to live with anxiety about the church, then you better believe that your non-apostle pastor and pastors live with anxiety about the church. Some of it sinful, some of it reasonable. So here's my exhortation to you. Be a joy to your pastors and your gospel partnership with them. Be faithful in your partnership with your pastors. I just want to let, let the author of Hebrews kind of say what I want to say, but just say it, in, just say it better. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Does that think anxiety? Shane has to give an account for your souls. Will has to give an account for your souls. I have to give an account for your souls. We carry that with us, and it is heavy. Let them do this, listen to the language, with joy and not with groaning. Be like the Philippians. Don't be like the Corinthians. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Second example, missionaries. Life on the mission field is tough. So be a good gospel partner by praying frequently for, communicating frequently with, and giving generously to any missionaries that you support on the mission field. Point number seven. From the ver- uh from the first day until now. From the first day until now. Look back at verse 5. <clears throat> Paul gives thanks with joy for the Philippians because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Friends, do you know what missionaries don't need? They don't need short-term, non-committal relationships. Here's what they really need. Long-term relationships built on trust, accountability, and love. You don't need a lot of those kinds of relationships. You just need a few. Paul only had one in Macedonia, but it seems like that was all he needed. Point number eight, the priority of the gospel. This is our final point, the priority of the gospel. When I say priority, I'm thinking of two things. The first thing that I'm thinking of is the kind of ministry partners that we have. You'll notice that Paul says that he rejoices because of your partnership in the gospel, right? So, so the operative word in gospel partnership is gospel. 
What this means is that we aim to align most closely with those who align with the gospel. Right? So, listen, there may be times where we will go out and try to save babies with Catholics. If you've ever been to the abortion clinic, which I think now is not open, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. But if you've ever been out there with us as we've done evangelism, we're out there most of the time with Catholics. There's like Reformed people, crazy Protestant people, and Catholics, okay? And I can say that because I'm Protestant, right? So we can do that. We can partner with Catholics for things like that. We can be co-belligerents with liberal Methodists if the need arises. But when we think about spending our church's time, talent, and treasure in partnership with someone, we, we get very narrow. We ask ourselves, who seems to be most faithful to the gospel? If we're going to partner with a missions agency, we're not going to ask who has the best numbers, who has reported the most baptisms in the last five years, because that could be a load of nonsense, right? We ask ourselves, who seems to be most faithful to the gospel? When we think about uh, a man to hire as a pastor, we don't think who's the most gifted. We think who's the most faithful to the gospel. When we think about where we're going to team up with another church for something local in our ministry, right? We don't ask ourselves, who's going to be the church that has the most influence in our area that maybe we can siphon off some, some of that growth from them? No. Who's most faithful to the gospel that we've seen in our city? We're going to partner with them. The second thing that I want us to see is not in my manuscript, so it's not there. I guess I'll close it with this. Michael Wall began our service with this, so it's only appropriate to remind us that this local church is a community of people, and this is key, who have voluntarily entered into gospel partnership with one another, right? You don't have to be here. You could be at LifePoint. You could be at Point Mallard. You could be at First Bible. You could be at DPC. You could be at First Baptist, and there are 50 other options. But you have chosen to voluntarily enter into this church community for gospel partnership. And I want you to know that even through the ups and downs, I just got to read it off my notes. Even through the ups and downs and trials and difficulties of ministry in a fallen world, the members of Sixth Avenue have filled my prayers with joy. I wish you guys could see me when I'm traveling and I'm ministering with other churches. All I do is talk about you guys. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would bless this local fellowship. To the eyes of the world, there is not much here. But in the kingdom of heaven, we know that you are powerfully at work in this congregation. We are nothing in the eyes of the world, but we are everything to you, God, because you have equipped us after calling us, and you are committed to using us even now to glorify your name among the nations, and we pray that you will help us to be faithful as we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Please be seated. In light of all that we have read and heard and sung and what, what Sean has preached, let's take a moment of silence and, and think about those things. Now hear this benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You're dismissed.